case from uh, the Blue Cliff record, Ekigam Loku, which asks about Buddha, the pointer. The thousand sages have not transmitted the single world before sound. If you have never seen it personally, it's as if you were worlds away. Even if you discern it before sound and cut off the tongues of everyone in the world, you're still not a sharp fellow. Therefore, it is said, the sky can cover it, the earth can support it, empty space can't contain it, sun and moon cannot illuminate it. Where there is no Buddha and you alone are called the honored one, then for the first time you've amounted to something. Otherwise, you are not yet this way. You need to penetrate on and go on the tip of a hair and release the great shining illumination. Then, in all directions, you will be independent and free in the midst of phenomena. Whatever you pick up, there is nothing that is not it. But tell me, what is a thing that is so extraordinary? Does everyone understand? No one knows about the sweating horses of the past. They only want to emphasize the achievement that crowns the age. Leaving this matter aside for the moment, what about Zueto's public case? Look into what's written below. The case. A monk named Hui Chao asked Fayen. Hui Chao asked the teacher, what is Buddha? Fayen said, you are Hui Chao. Reverse. In the river country, the spring wind isn't blowing. Deep within the flowers, partridges are calling. At the three-tiered dragon gate, where the waves are high, fish become dragons. Yet fools still go on scooping out the evening pond water. I woke up this morning and uh, actually felt more energized. You know, it's, uh, we lost an hour of sleep. And time change, maybe we were more tired, but I woke up and it was still dark and it felt like a sashimi. And it does something, there's so much power in the morning, fresh, new, new step, new beginning, the sun rising slowly. There's something magical about sitting in the dark and experiencing the sunrise. There's so much beauty 
There's so much to appreciate. And we worry about being tired. We worry about not getting what we want, getting too much, not getting enough. We're always surrounded by everything we need. That is for uh, realization. It's always there. But then we get distracted. The mind has its own agendas. We pay so much attention to it. We get grumpy, we complain, we like, we dislike. So what is needed? What do we need to change that? What do we need in order to pay more attention? To be more in tune, to be le less self-concerned, less self-centered. Last week I, I spoke a little bit about <clears throat> the necessity of taking personal responsibility for staying rooted in our zazen practice, and for the development of a mountain-like stability when we see. I also mentioned that as we work through this process, we need to be watchful of the tendency to abnegate responsibility, to not want to take responsibility, which obviously often appears as the intermittent nature of our commitment to the path. We go from feeling very strongly about the practice, understanding, why? Not answering it, but understanding it. We go from that to experiencing doubts, loss of trust, when we try to maintain a mountain seat at home. Maybe clear here. What about later on at home? What about tomorrow and the next day? What happens when that momentum, that depth, that strength is lost. And then something else shows up, something else takes its place. And this is our challenge, because this is our practice, this is what we practice. I was talking to somebody who was a monastic for many years, and she's now uh, practicing in the city, and she said, that she understands now how much more difficult it is for practitioners that are not at the monastery. And she said how much easier it is when you're at the monastery. Everything says practice. Everything is there to support your practice. You're right there. And it's easy to merge. You also are spending time with people who are sharing that with you who are there to help you, and you are there to help them, to create a cooperative environment, a conducive environment for practice. 
And it seems that what we are dealing with in everyday life is the opposite. It seems as if we are surrounded by people that try to pull us away from practice. Whether it's people or responsibilities or challenges of everyday life, paying the bills, dealing with work, dealing with children. It seems that way, but it's not that way. But what needs to change is the way we look at it, rather than expect it to come from the outside. We look within. How do I interact with those challenges? It's not the what, it's the how that matters. Is there practice there? Does practice begin and end? If we don't work with that, if we don't work with the aspect of taking personal responsibility, we will never get out of this fluctuating cycle of in and out. Experiencing depth and going back to the shallows. And the tendency to abnegate responsibility does not arise only when we decide to get on a spiritual path. It actually is revealed in other aspects of life as well. And every time it's revealed, it gives us the opportunity to explore it, to understand that it's not about Zen practice. The only thing Zen practice will do is shed light. So then we can intersect it if we choose to do so. And I was thinking about this in relation to the first noble truth, right view which actually deals directly with a fundamental understanding of the impermanent nature of all things and the universal law of causality, karma. So in terms of Zen training, this fundamental understanding means to stand under, to experience in our own lives and through our own bodies. We encounter the practice from being rooted in the conventional truth. We are rooted. Make no mistake about that, we are rooted in something. That's why it's so difficult. We refuse to mess with it. We may go through the motions, but often we refuse to actually destabilize it. We are terrified of destabilizing it. So we may look like practitioners, but are we a practitioner? Is, is that true for each one of us? Are we going to where it hurts, to where we are afraid to go? We are rooted in a conventional truth that teaches us to create and protect a separate sense of self, to maximize the pleasure and convenience of this self and to do all we can to limit the level of discomfort and pain it is exposed to. Right? That makes sense, of course. 
And we meet the first noble truth from that point. And it seems naturally the opposite of what we want. So we run away from it. But as the Buddha said, we're upside down. And we are blind to the true nature of reality. That's what he meant by being upside down. trying to make our lives as comfortable as possible and to hold on to a separate sense of self doesn't really do anything. It doesn't change anything. There is no self, period. There is nothing to protect and defend. The Buddha did not invent it. He just realized it. He saw it, and at the same time, he saw how we can be blind to it. Now, because we're upside down, we need to do some work on getting in touch with the fundamental error that keeps us in this state. That's all it is. It's just an error. It's not more than a mistake. Mistake in understanding things as they are. And having a habit of fortifying a separate sense of self, we must take the responsibility to examine this notion and to verify its truthfulness. Although it feels real, it feels convincing, is it? And you can't verify it by reading a book. There's only, there's only one way to verify to get to work, to examine. That's what we do. This is our practice. Commonly, we do the exact opposite. We don't take the responsibility to verify. Instead, we ask other people and the world to dictate to us who we are. To verify the self, rather to verify selflessness. That's the comment. So then, when others praise us, the sense of self-worth gets boosted. When we meet criticism, blame, or insulting words, of course, the sense of self-worth gets diminished. Nothing goes up, nothing goes down. But we believe what we hear. We believe others. They know better. How do I look? How do I seem to others? What do they think about me? And then there is a sense of going up and down. And that has to change. Meaning that taking the responsibility needs to happen. So rather than ask others, who am I? We ask. 
ourselves. Who am I? But who is that? Who is going to give us the answer? Where will the answer come from? Can the world tell us? But the world does not know. Others don't know. So what is the message that the world is telling us? Isn't that the message? Can that be the message? The world can never satisfy this question for you. Who you are must be answered only by you, by each one of us. Through work, through practice, through examination. It's a different kind of examination, of course. not self-confirmation, it's self-realization, very different. And the world is exactly telling us what we need to hear. It is. But before we can hear it, we have to fine-tune the listening device. We have to fine-tune it so it matches the frequency in which the world is speaking. It is speaking very clearly, but not in the common language. It has its own language. It is constantly telling us that what we need to know and that which wants to know are one and the same. It is also telling us that conceptual knowledge does not lead to realization. Which basically means we need to get comfortable with not knowing it through the intellect. And then from there take the responsibility to verify the fundamental truth through the sole power of our being. The entire being. Not a part of it. I mean, what's the part of the brain when you look at the entire being? Yeah, there is a brain. There are thoughts. There are feelings, emotions, sensations, reactions. But it's just a part or parts. that are always connected to everything else, but by themselves, can only reflect the totality. And it's the totality that we need to get in touch with, rather than isolate a fragment, such as brain, nose, ear, tongue, body. That is to be on the same frequency. 
that is to experience totality. So only through the power of our being, which means sitting alone on the Buddha seat, exactly where you are, wearing the Buddha's clothes, eating the Buddha's food. Who else? When? How? And the teacher in this case, Fayan, <coughs> the 10th century Chinese master who was a successor of Guichen. Once when Fayan was traveling with two other monks to deepen their understanding, they got caught up in a storm and decided to spend a few nights at Guichen's monastery. When they arrived, Guichen asked, where are you heading? Fayan replied, I am on an ongoing pilgrimage. Gretchen said, Why do you go on a pilgrimage? Fayan replied, I don't know. And Gretchen said, Not knowing is most intimate. Another translation says, Not knowing is nearest. So what does it mean to venture out without any assumption of knowing? No assumption that we know what we may find. It means to open ourselves to the Dharma, to open ourselves to openness itself. It means to venture out. out of what we think the self is into what we don't know. Opening up the hand that grasps. Letting go of the ideas, concepts. It means to venture out. So to go on a pilgrimage not knowing now, that's a good first step. That is taking responsibility and at the same time being curious. To begin a fresh new day without the assumption of knowing how it will manifest. And, it, and without expecting life to meet our desires. Now that by itself is to broadcast in the same frequency as the vast and open world. The world does not know. How could we know? But the world is not confused because it does not know. Only we are confused because we think there's something wrong with not knowing. The world is fine, doing what it needs to do, staying open to the unknown. But we wake up in the morning 
having a pretty heavy assumption that it'll be pretty much like yesterday, like the week before. How, how could we, how can we know that? And then life happens, and we're shocked, surprised. Why? Why not? Why not? Because I didn't expect it. That's why. Now it is said that when Fayan heard Gui Chen's response, not knowing his most intimate, he instantly experienced enlightenment. But then later stories show that it disappeared and he had some more deepening to do. But at some point, as they were studying a certain sutra with Gritchen, they came to a sentence that read, that reads, heaven and earth and I have the same root. So Gritchen asked Payan, are mountains, rivers, and earth identical or separate from you? Payan said, separate. Which and then held up two fingers. And Fayan said, identical, identical. So it's interesting to see how those great masters were also confused, unsure. And yet, they kept going. So it's okay to be confused, as long as we keep going, as long as we never stop, as long as we have the determination to fall down and get up, to fall down and get up. Then it's fine. Then we can learn from falling down. We learn to drive ourselves deeper into that quest. So as the weather got better, the three monks were about to leave. And Guichen accompanied them to the gates and asked, I've heard that you say several times that the three realms are only mind and the myriad dhammas are only consciousness. He then pointed to a rock lying on the ground by the gate and asked, Do you say that this rock is inside or outside of mind? Fayan said, inside. Guichen said, why would a traveler carry such a heavy load in his mind? Dumbfounded, Fayan couldn't answer. So he put down his luggage at Guichen's feet and asked for permission to remain at the monastery and study with him. Each day, Fayan spoke about the way with Guichen and demonstrated his understanding. Guichen would always say, the, the Buddha Dharma isn't like that. No, 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 and no. Finally, Fan said, I've rather words and ideas. And Guichen said, If you want to talk about Buddha Dharma, everything you see embodies it. 
And these words find an experience great enlightenment. Yeah, remember that before that, he exhausted all these ideas, all these concepts, all the calculations. All the, uh, if it's not this, it's that. If it's not that, it must be this. Let me try this. I'll try that. I got it. I'm going to go into the Dokusan room and present it. Now, in this way, from that angle. And then finally, exhausted it. But he exhausted it without feeling discouraged. That's the difference. He exhausted his mind without feeling exhausted. Maybe that's what we need, to exhaust ourselves and then find fresh new energy that is not vested in thought, that comes from somewhere else in And then the attention finally is freed from thought and can go to the gut, to the center, to the hara, from which we can connect. It's interesting that the hara, about two inches below the navel, is considered the center of the body. And in Aikido, no, we have the Hakama, and Hakama forms a triangle-like shape that begins from the ground, begins from the ground and grows up and it, it ends up in sort of a point at the center. And then from that point, the body widens to the shoulders. And it is said that that point is the meeting point between heaven and earth, the center, form and formlessness. We have to connect to that point, to move, to be able to move from that point. We are top heavy. We have to ground ourselves, not forgetting anything not rejecting anything, just having everything meet at the center. So when he exhausted his thoughts, his mind was empty, then the attention was able to drop to the center. And he realized. Now, Wichan's statement is the same as Dogen's to forget the self is to be verified by the myriad things. Right? He said, everything you see embodies it. But we have to forget the self before we can be verified by the myriad things. And what we do usually is try to verify the self through other people's opinions and ideas, through our own opinions and ideas. We don't want to forget the self. 
hard work to keep up with the self, to feed the self. It's exhausting. It's actually worse than, or more difficult than practicing. It's more difficult to be devoted to a self than to be devoted to the Dharma, to the teaching, to the practice. fight ourselves. Eventually, we realize it doesn't work, but when does this happen? When, when is the eventual going to show up? To forget the self is to be verified by the myriad things. And it's all pointing to us all the time that Everything is always expressing the fundamental truth. And then it's also saying that the work of verification is on us. You know, like, like Fayan, all of them, they experience, and if you read their biographies, you see that they experience difficulties, challenges on that path. They were confused before they realized. So that, with a determination, it leads, it leads us, it leads you to where you need to go. In the midst of feeling lost and deluded, they found a way to stay on the path and to keep arousing bodhicitta. mind that strives to awaken. And the point there, Yuan Wu said, no one knows about the sweating horses of the past. The only one emphasized the achievement that crowns the age. I think this is true in many areas of life. When we hear about or meet somebody who expresses some level of mastery or some achievement, we tend to focus on where they're at now. We don't have much interest in inquiring about the years of dedicated training and sweat and blood and tears that they put in. We just want to admire the state they're, that they're at now. Oh, how beautiful that is. I wish I could blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we're born like that, but we have to verify it. We have to clarify it. That's where the work happens. That's where the responsibility matters. So we don't waste our lives. You know, we don't want to know about the countless periods of frustration they experienced throughout the years. Maybe the clumsiness they, they went through, the doubts. who arrives at any level of mastery or proficiency or embodiment without sweating the challenges on the road. How is it possible? And we have to be open to that. We have to understand that that's part of the practice. And we need to know how to be students of the path. How to be a student. You know, in, in traditional martial art training, 
the student is expected to steal the technique from the teacher rather than to wait for it to be given by the teacher. But in our Western culture, there is a notion that the student part of the deal is simply to show up. Here I am. I'm here, now you teach me. I did my part. Now you, the teacher, do your part. Are you not giving me anything today? Or maybe I'll go somewhere else. Maybe there's a better place to study. A better teacher. A teacher that will finally give me what I need to go deeper. That is not taking responsibility. Expecting somebody else to do it for you. To know how to be a student is crucial, it's vital. It doesn't work this way, not in Aikido training and definitely not on the path of Zen. As it is often said, you see for yourself. Many crimes end with that whether it's a footnote or the pointer, you see for yourself. You do the work. You realize that your attention is in the thoughts, that you are so self-concerned, so self-centered. So much of your time is spent thinking about yourself. Me, me, and me, and me. How do you expect to realize anything? When I say you, I mean us, all of us. This is what we need to do. And you know, in, in our practice, in our way of practice, most of you don't have the time to sit with the Sangha every day. It's just the way it is. And then some of you get the opportunity to study with me only two or three times a month. And those who are in another state or another country may even have less exposure to traditional Sangha practice. Which means that the bulk of the responsibility to remain energized is on you. On you here, on you, those who are listening, who will listen to this, record the talk. But who else will keep the vitality of your daily practice? Who will get you to the cushion? Who else can be responsible for your own awakening? I think we keep hitting the snooze button. Later, later, later. I'm not ready to give up on the self. In a little while, I will. How do you know that? There is a teacher, there is a sangha, and there is a practitioner. There is a place for each of those. But each member of the sangha, including the teacher, is solely responsible 
to keep the practice alive. In this koan, Huichao asks Payan, what is Buddha? And Payan says, you are Huichao. Now it seems, it seems simple. Anyone who has done some reading about Buddhism and maybe practiced for a while understands that Buddha nature is inherent. So it seems clear that what Fayan is telling Huichao is, you are a Buddha. Well, we have to watch out because often what we hear reflects our limited view and not what is being heard. Often we don't see what's going on. We don't hear what's being heard. In the commentary, Yuan Wu says, People of later times just went to the words to make up interpretations. Some say Hui Chao is himself Buddha. That is why Fayan answered the way he did. Some say it's much like riding an ox searching for an ox. Some say the asking is it. What relevance has any of this, if you go on understanding in this fashion, not only you turn against yourself, but you seriously demean that man of old, the Buddha. This is defiling the Buddha. And it says, if you want to see the whole of Fayant's device, you must be a fellow who does not turn his head when struck. A fellow who knows outside the words. Outside the words. Beyond words, sounds. Then, only then, you will have a small portion of realization. If one by one they make intellectual interpretations, everyone on earth would be an exterminator of the Buddha's race. As for the Zen traveler of Huichao's awakening here, he was constantly engrossed in penetrating investigation, penetrating investigation. Therefore, under the impact of one word, it was as if the bottom fell out of his bucket. Because Huichao was constantly engrossed in penetrating investigation, as it is said. He did not go to the interpretation to get an understanding and was able to see Fayan's meaning and be flushed out of whatever concepts were, flo were floating in his head at that time. Whatever was left got flushed out. So to hear your Buddha doesn't do anything. In fact, sometimes it can do the opposite. I'm a Buddha, great, I can just keep doing what I'm doing. Everybody's a Buddha. Does it work? You know, to know how to practice correctly, to stay determined and disciplined, to raise the great doubt and the great trust. And to be watchful, not to get trapped by interpretations and concepts. These are all necessary ingredients for the ripening in Zen practice. 
each one of those ingredients are necessary. It's not just one thing. It's not just once a week. 24-7. Moment by moment practice. There's a story that sharpens the point of this koan. And some of you may have heard, probably heard it before. Superintendent said had been studying with Fayan uh, in the congregation for a while, but never asked to enter Dokusan, or never asked for any instructions. One day, Fayan saw him and asked, why haven't you come to my room to ask questions? Tse replied, didn't you know, teacher? When I was at Ching Lin's place, I had an entry. I had a realization. Fayan said, Okay, try to recall it for me. Tse said, I asked, what is Buddha? Lin said, the fire, god, the fire god comes looking for fire. Fayan said, good words, but I'm afraid you misunderstood. Can you say something more for me? Tse said, well, the fire god is in the province of fire. He's seeking fire with fire. Likewise, I'm a Buddha, yet I went on searching for a Buddha. And Fayan said, sure enough, you did not understand. Containing his anger, Tse left the monastery and decided to leave. He started to travel away from the monastery. When he crossed the river, crossed the river and went off, Fayan said, this man can be saved only if he comes back. If he does not return, he cannot be saved. Out on the road, after some travel, said, thought to himself, this guy is a teacher of 500 people. He's well known, well respected. How could he deceive me? Maybe I missed something. Maybe there is something more to what he was saying. So he decided to went back to the monastery, to go back to the monastery. So he got back, entered Fayan's room, and said, okay, I'm back. Could you teach me? And then Fayan said, okay, just ask me and I will answer. Thereupon Tse asked, what is Buddha? And Fayan said, the fire god comes looking for fire. At these words, Tse were greatly enlightened. So why? Why did Fayan say this man can be saved only if he comes back? And if he doesn't, he cannot be saved. And what went through Tse's mind when he decided to turn around and go back to the monastery? You know, before the Buddha Dharma can be revealed to us, we need to shake up the sense of self we have come to rely on. To destabilize it. We need to not trust it. To not trust it. To not rely on it, to not rely on all the attachments it is clinging to. 
to doubt the substantiated appearance of who you think you are. And then to begin to crack the protective shell that surrounds it. It means to not be so convinced that the thoughts of insecurity and inadequacy have any significant meaning. Sometimes it means to not be so convinced that you've got it all figured out. That depends. Now the, the prerequisite of creating spiritual opening is to have the wondrous and curious disposition of a baby in the body of a mature and responsible adult. To be like a baby as a responsible and mature adult. Can we do that? Fresh, brand new day. Isn't that what it is telling us? The sun is rising. Brand new. Baby-like. How do we feel? Well, tired. Hungry. Discouraged. Lonely. Depressed. Poor. I don't know. Fill in the blank. It means to, to doubt what is known and to trust what is unknown. Say was attached to being the one who has had realization experience and therefore did not allow the essence of realization to penetrate his bone marrow and to genuinely manifest in his life. You know, sometimes attachment to nothing is worse than attachment to something. Attachment is attachment. Doesn't really matter. And at the heart of all attachment, there is a need to grasp. And at the heart of that lies a false sense of self. And a persistent denial of impermanence. Although it is clear, we have clear evidence that. We are no more than a continuous process of disintegration. We are no more, nothing more than that. I mean, it's not a bad thing, it's just the way it is. Although, plenty of proof for that, we stubbornly insist on holding on to the contrary. That's why the practice is urging us to ask, what am I holding on to? And then to examine the grasping from the understanding that letting go is inevitable. What am I holding on? And then to understand that although I am holding on, there is no holding on. We look deeply realize that all attachments arise out of our self-grasping stance. And if we can destabilize the self-grasping stance, there's no attachment to get rid of. 
It's not what we attach to. It's the fact that attachment is not possible. Who are you? Who is grabbing? Who is attaching? Who is holding on? The what interchanges from day to day, from year to year. And it doesn't really matter. The verse says, in the, in the river country, the spring wind isn't blowing. Deep within the flowers, partridges are calling. At the three-tiered dragon gate, where the waves are high, fish become dragons. The waves are high. Everyday life. Here is where you need to become a dragon. And the one we have on the Kamizan. This is where dragons are born. Not here at the dojo. Here. And the last line says, Yet fools still go on scooping out the evening pond water. And the footnote says, This is standing by a stump waiting for a rabbit. You may remember that story of this guy, this uh, hunter, who went to the woods and saw a running rabbit that happened to collide with a tree stump, died. The guy took the rabbit, cooked it, had it for dinner. Next morning, went back to the stump, waiting for a rabbit. It's funny. Sounds, sounds stupid, sounds foolish. But not so much for somebody who abnegates personal responsibility for hunting his own food. Maybe that's an option. Maybe I'll get lucky. Maybe there's an easy way, a shortcut. Maybe somebody else will hunt for me. Somebody else will chew the food for me, sweat for me, walk for me. Verify. Tell me who I am. Because I don't know who I am. An ancient said, two-thirds of one's day having swiftly passed, not a single aspect of the spirit has been polished. Craving life, Day after day goes by in distress. That's a description of our lives. This is how we waste life. This is how we stand by a stump waiting for a rabbit. What are you waiting for? Who are you? When will it happen? When will it happen? A couple of weeks we are going to begin the spring angle. And I started to think about different ways we can work together to 
take those three months, the 90 days of anger, to really go deep. This is not about making New Year's resolutions. This is truly about awakening, about intensifying. So if you think you're going to stand up here in front of that shiki and say, I'm going to commit to what I committed last time, then think again, because that's not going to happen. Brand new day, fresh, new commitments. We need to tighten it up. We need to bring it in. Tighten up the slack. And I'm going to email about that specifics, how we're going to do it. Uh, KJ and I started to talk about it, and Yoga and I also talked about it. So in the next few days, uh, you will uh, receive an email with uh, further details. But in the next two weeks, look at your practice, look deeply. Be honest with yourself and ask, am I practicing correctly? Am I practicing seamlessly? Am I putting my heart and soul into it? Or is it one of my many other interests in life? Because if, if it is one of many other interests, you're not practicing correctly. And that's what we're going to work on together. And we're going to together make those 90 days count. So that's your homework.